Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Good morning. Our reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 6 and if it's from the NOV and if you want to follow along there's a Bible at the end of the row and if you don't have a Bible please feel free to um, grab one of those and keep it for yourself and if we have to replace 40 Bibles that'd be fantastic so feel free. When men began to increase in number on earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God were uh, Sorry, went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on earth had become and that every inclination of thought of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind who I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons. Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people on the earth for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. If you're not as old as me, then that's about 140 metres long, 23 metres wide, 13.5 metres high and about 46 centimetres from the top. Put a door in in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on the earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark 
two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And its storyline divides into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world. And then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible, and God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these creatures called humans, or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image, which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world. And they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf, which in context means to harness all of its potential to care for it and make it a place where even more life can flourish. God blesses the humans. It's a key word in this book. And he gives them a garden. It's like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Now, the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil, or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death, because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. This is represented by the tree of life. And so in chapter 3, a mysterious figure, a snake, enters into the story. The snake's given no introduction other than it's a creature that God made. And it becomes clear that it's a creature in rebellion against God, and it wants to lead the humans into rebellion and their death. The snake tells a different story about the tree and the choice. It says that seizing the knowledge of good and evil are not going to bring death, that it's actually the way to life and becoming like God themselves. Now, the irony of this is tragic because we know the humans, they're already like God. They were made to reflect God's image. But instead of trusting God, the humans seize autonomy. They take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves. And in an instant, the whole story spirals out of control. The first casualty is human relationships. The man and the woman, they suddenly realize how vulnerable they are. Now, they can't even trust each other. And so they make clothes and they hide their bodies from one another. The second casualty is that intimacy between God and the humans is lost. So they go and run and hide from God. And then when God finds them, they start this game of blame shifting about who rebelled first. 
Now, right here, the story stops, and there's a series of short poems where God declares to the snake and then to the humans the tragic consequences of their actions. God first tells the snake that despite its apparent victory, it is destined for defeat to eat dust. God promises that one day a seed or a descendant will come from the woman who's going to deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head, which sounds like great news, but this victory is going to come with a cost because the snake too will deliver a lethal strike to the descendant's heel as it's being crushed. It's a very mysterious promise of this wounded victor. But in the flow of the story so far, you see this is an act of God's grace. The humans, they've just rebelled. And what does God do? He promises to rescue them. But this doesn't erase the consequences of the human's decision. So God informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out in the field, it's going to be fraught with grief and pain because of the rebellion, all leading to their death. From here, the story then spirals downward. Chapters 3 through 11, they trace the widening ripple effect of the rebellion and of human relationships fracturing at every level. So there's a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain's so jealous of his brother that he wants to murder him. And God warns him not to give in to the temptation, but he does anyway. He murders him in the field. So Cain then goes on to build a city where violence and oppression reign. And this is all epitomized in the story of Lamech. He's the first man in the Bible to have more than one wife. He's accumulating them like property. And then he goes on to sing a short song about how he's more violent and vengeful than Cain ever was. After this, we get an odd story about the sons of God, which could refer to evil angelic beings, or it could refer to ancient kings who claimed that they descended from the gods. And like Lamech, they acquire as many wives as they wanted, and they produce the Nephilim, these great warriors of old. Whichever view is right, the point is that humans are building kingdoms that fill God's world with violence and even more corruption. In response, we're told that God is broken with grief. Humanity is ruining his good world, and they're ruining each other. And so out of a passion to protect the goodness of his world, he washes it clean of humanity's evil with a great flood. But he protects one blameless human, Noah, and his family, and he commissions him as a new Adam. He repeats the divine blessing and commissions him to go out into the world. And so our hopes are really high, but then Noah fails too, and also in a garden. He goes and he plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk out of his mind. And then one of his sons, Ham, does something shameful to his father in the tent. And so here we have our new Adam, naked and ashamed just like the first, and the downward spiral begins again. It all leads to the foundation of the city of Babylon. The people of ancient Mesopotamia, they come together around this new technology they have, the brick. And they can make cities and towers bigger and faster than anybody's ever done before. And they want to build a new kind of tower that will reach up to the gods, and they will make a great name for themselves. It's an image of human rebellion and arrogance. It's the garden rebellion now writ large. And so God humbles their pride and scatters them. Now, this is a diverse group of stories, but you can see they're all exploring the same basic point. God keeps giving humans the chance to do the right thing with his world, and humans keep ruining it. These stories are making a claim that we live in a good world that we have turned bad. 
that we've all chosen to define good and evil for ourselves, and so we all contribute to this world of broken relationships, leading to conflict and violence and ultimately death. But there's hope. God promised that one day a descendant would come, the wounded victor who will defeat evil at its source. And so despite humanity's evil, God is determined to bless and rescue his world. And so the big question, of course, is what is God going to do? And the next story, The Hinge, offers the answer. But for now, that's what Genesis 1 through 11 is all about. Just closing prayer. <laughs> it's a good recap, isn't it, of what Genesis is all about? And today we're continuing our preaching series. And today we come to the first message of a trilogy on Noah. The next three weeks we'll track his journey from the time God asked him to build an ark all the way to God's promises for the future. And Noah's ark provides a great Sunday school story. But as we look at this story, we'll see that there's a lot more in it and there's a heap of stuff in it for us to apply to our lives. So before we get to it, let's recap on where we're up to in our series. We're doing a series called Beginnings, the book of Genesis, and we've had four weeks before today. Week one was talking about God creating the heavens and the earth. Week two was talking about the creation of humanity. Week three, we talked about the fall of humanity. And then in week four, Ray preached a great message about the effects of sin focusing on Cain killing his brother Abel and committing the first murder because of his envy and jealousy. Now, since then, we've had two weeks. We had a week off last week um, for our one-year celebration. But in the text, we've had about 1,500 years. Chapter 4 and 5 cover about 1,500 years of history. And in chapter 6 today, we're introduced to Noah. But we're also introduced to what the world has become. Now, in chapter 4, when Ray preached through that passage... Uh, He talked about Cain and Abel, and he talked about Cain burning with jealousy. And we saw in that passage that when Cain was burning with jealousy, God said to him that sin was crouching at the door, and it desired to have him, but he must master it. Now, we know the end of the story. Uh, He didn't master it, and as a result, he killed his brother. But we also see in the next 1,500 years, it's clear that the vast majority of the world has not mastered sin, but rather sin has mastered them. And there's only one person who stands out uh, at this point of the story, and his name is Noah. And so today's passage can be broken down under three main headings, and they are man's wickedness, Noah's righteousness, and God's graciousness. And so we're going to start by looking at the first one, and that is man's wickedness. As we look at today's passage, it's pretty clear, pretty quickly, that this is one giant fall from grace. In Genesis chapter 1, after God had created the world and after he created mankind, he said it was very good. And mankind was the part of his creation that was the pinnacle of his creation. And it's the part of his creation that elevated his idea of the world from good to very good. Uh, Just this morning, I was talking to Alex, and he was telling me that he went to the movies last night, and he saw Tarzan. And uh, I said, what was Tarzan like? And he said, it was good. And I said, was it good or very good? And he said, it was good. And, and, you know, when I heard that, I thought, I'll wait till DVD. But if he had said it was very good, I thought, maybe I'll go and see it tonight. And that's the difference between very good and very good. Uh, The world, God created everything. He said it was good. Then he created mankind. He looked at it and he said, it's very good. And so mankind was the pinnacle of his creation. And yet now in Genesis chapter 6, we read that he regrets even making them. 
By the time we get to chapter 6, he's ready to wipe them off the face of the earth. Verse 6 says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. Older versions of the NIV say that he was grieved that he had made mankind. And his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I made them. Skipping down to verse 13, God says to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. It seems kind of drastic, doesn't it? God creates everything. He creates human beings. He says it's very good, but now he wants to wipe them out. But as we look through the passage, we get pretty quickly a picture of how drastically bad things had become. In verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And in verse 3, the Lord says, my spirit will not contend with humans forever. For they are mortal, their days will be 120 years. And so the contrast between Genesis chapter 1 and the world in chapter 6 is as stark as it could possibly be. Genesis chapter 1, God creates mankind, places them in this beautiful garden where they're in intimate relationship with God. They walk and talk in the garden with Him. They're in unblemished, unbroken relationship with each other. There is peace and joy and love and prosperity. Everything they touch thrives and flourishes. But now in chapter 6, when we read about the world, we see a different story. It's brokenness. It's violence. It's only evil thoughts all of the time. And so from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 6, the spiraling downward of mankind has been absolutely catastrophic. This is what it looks like when we decide to walk away from God, when we decide that we can do things our own way. Now I've got to say that the first verses of this chapter are quite confusing. As a preacher, they're the kind of verses you want to skip over and hope that none of you notice. But I know you're too clever for that. And at Follow, we don't do that. We confront the difficult passages head on and we try and explain passages that seem rather confusing. And so let me read it for you today. And as we look at these few verses, I think it will help paint the picture and add to the picture of how wicked the world had become. Verse 1 says, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, now who are they? We're not sure, saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Verse 4 says the Nephilim, we're not sure who they are, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. And so two questions spring to mind immediately when reading these verses. First one is, who are the sons of God? And secondly, who on earth, literally, are the Nephilim? Who are these giant superhuman beings? And as you look at the commentators, there's really three main theories. The first theory is that when we hear the term sons of God, it's talking about those from the line of Seth. And so we read about Cain and Abel a couple of weeks ago. But after Cain killed Abel, Adam and Eve had another son. And they called that son Seth. And so chapter 4 traces the family line of Cain or the Cainites. And chapter 5 traces the family line of Seth or the Sethites. 
And the line of Seth was seen as the godly line. The line of Cain was seen as the ungodly line. And so many people take this to mean, and, and the reformers were these people, Calvin and Luther, they believe this interpretation, that when it talks about the sons of God, it's talking about people from the line of Seth, the godly line. And, and what they believe was happening is that people from the godly line were looking at these women from the ungodly line who they weren't meant to marry, they weren't meant to mingle with. The problem is that they looked at the women in that line and said, they're hot. And they are, they are really good looking. And we're not meant to touch them, but you know what? I want that as my wife. And so they would go and they would take people from the line of Cain. And God wasn't happy with the godly line mixing with the ungodly line. And so that's the first interpretation of what is a difficult passage. The second interpretation was in the video as well. And it basically is that when we hear the term sons of God, it's referring to kings. The word God in the Hebrew is the word Elohim which is consistent with those who rule. So in this theory, the sons of God were kings who were taking women by force to make them their wives. And so this was done often with violence. This was often done um, against their will. And it was corrupt. And so this interpretation would be consistent with the description of the culture found in the chapter. The third um, theory coming from these verses is that the, the term sons of God is referring to fallen angels. Uh, the same phrase, sons of God, is used three times in the book of Job and in other parts of Scripture to describe heavenly beings. And so in this interpretation, it's talking about fallen angels or demonic powers that were coming to earth and having children with the beautiful women, which would probably make sense with verse 4, because their offspring were Nephilim, some sort of superhuman giants. And so it seems to make sense. This theory, I think, will appeal to people who like sci-fi. I, I hate sci-fi. I hate Star Wars. Don't even get me started on Star Trek. Uh, I don't like the X-Files. No, 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 no. Uh, I'm not a fan of Supernatural. Um, but when we read this, it sort of sounds a bit sci-fi, doesn't it? That fallen angels are having babies with beautiful women and producing Nephilim. Now, it may seem to us a little bit far-fetched. But when we consider that the earth pre-flood and post-flood appears to be very different, it may not be that far-fetched after all. For example, when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden at the end of chapter 3, it said that God placed cherubim, or literally angels there, to guard the tree of life. And so it seems possible that prior to the flood, heavenly beings were more visibly active on earth than they are today. And so I'm not going to give you the answer today. I'll let you wrestle with Scripture yourself and decide which one of those interpretations fits best with the Bible. But whatever decision you come to on all of that, it'll all lead to the same conclusion that there's a whole lot of wicked stuff happening on earth. Whether it's humans doing wicked stuff or humans and fallen angels doing wicked stuff together, there's no doubt in the passage that in God's eyes, the earth had become wicked and he's not pleased with where the world was at. Wickedness was a problem then. Um, but it's still a problem today. Just recently, we've started the Blessed Collective, our food van project. For those who don't know what that is, um, basically every Tuesday and Thursday night, we go down to Burke Park in Pakenham. And we go down there and we serve hot food to people who are struggling in life, poor, disadvantaged, lonely, isolated. And every Tuesday and Thursday night, we go down there to serve people in our local community. Um, just on a side note, this week we started a page midweek on the Blessed Collective on Facebook, we now have almost 1,000 likes from people in our community. To put that in context, our church has been going for 12 months, we have 470 likes. 
And so this is something that's captured the imagination of our community. And one of the things I love about serving our community is that it's a chance to show them the love of Christ in practical ways. And so we've been serving down there for around about a month now. But I've got to say, it feels like ever since we started that God has been testing our commitment because it's been pretty miserable in terms of weather. Uh, This week, if you wake up and it's a freezing cold day, like minus five, and the wind is howling outside and it's pouring with rain and you don't want to get out of bed and you think to yourself, what day is it? Don't bother looking at your watch or looking at the calendar. I can tell you it's Tuesday or it's Thursday (laughs) because they're the days that we meet down at Burke Park. And it has been like a lake down there, a complete river. And uh, as a result, I remember one night driving home, and I had the experience where my clothes were sticking to my skin because they were wet all the way through. And it's an awful feeling, isn't it? And I got home and I kind of peeled off my clothes and I put them in the dirty wash basket to wash and then I jumped under a hot shower, the kind of hot shower that makes your skin red. That's the only kind of shower, isn't it? And I stood there, I get told off all the time by Kim, it's too hot, but I stood there for about, I don't know, an hour, no, it wasn't really an hour, I wish it was, but I, I remember the feeling, it was a beautiful feeling, because all the dirt and grime that I'd accumulated, all the mud that had come from the park, I stood there in the shower, and I watched it wash off me down the plug hole. Now, please don't visualize this, um, but you can imagine what I'm saying, it's all washing off, and at the end of my shower, it's awkward, isn't it? Um, <laughs> The end of my shower, I felt clean, and it's a good feeling, and I was pondering that this week, and you know, sometimes I think that's the way that we view sin and wickedness, that sin and wickedness is something that is out there, and when we go out into the world, somehow we get tainted by sin, and then we need to come back to Christ, and he washes us clean, but the truth is this, that wickedness doesn't start out there, it starts in here, it starts in the human heart. We're not sinners because we've sinned, we sin because we're sinners and we're born that way. If you're a parent here, you will know there are certain things that you will need to teach your children and there are certain things they will learn all by themselves. For example, sharing is something you will need to teach your kids. Uh, you put them down with their siblings, playing with the toys or in a play group or with their friends, they won't naturally gravitate towards sharing. They will say words like, mine! And they'll have a tantrum if someone tries to take their toy. And so they'll naturally gravitate towards selfishness. And so we need to teach them to share. Saying please and thank you is something that you will need to teach your children to do. Cleaning up and contributing in the household is something you'll need to teach your kids over and over and over and over again. And they still won't get it. And when you ask them to clean the dishes, they will still protest and complain that you have the nerve and the cheek to pay all the bills and to keep them alive, but to the same time ask them to do the dishes. That's probably what happens in your house. It doesn't happen in my house because I'm a pastor and nothing like that happens in a pastor's house. Right? Wrong. Sorry to disappoint you. But there are certain things that you'll have to teach your kids along the way, but there's certain things that you won't have to teach your kids. Saying no is not something you'll have to teach your kids. They'll learn that all by themselves. Disobeying is not something you'll have to teach your kids. In fact, if you leave them to their own devices, they will soon become experts in disobeying. I have noticed that it takes about three months for a child to wrap us around their little finger. 
They will cry and they will scream and they will whinge and they will manipulate a situation to get exactly what they want whenever they want it, exactly when they want it, and we just sort of follow behind them oblivious to the fact that we have been taking for a ride. And so why is it that kids have to be taught some things and they seem to be the things that are good and yet the things that are bad we don't have to teach them? Well, the reason is because we're born into sin. It's part of the human condition. And wickedness doesn't start out there, it starts in our hearts. And that's a problem. And it's a problem because God is love, He is the source of all love, we only know what love is because God exists, but at the same time He's holy. And because He's holy, and that holiness and love go hand in hand, He actually hates sin. He can't tolerate it, and He hates sin because He knows that it destroys our lives, but He also knows that it separates us from the one relationship that will bring us purpose and joy and fulfillment and life, and that's a relationship with our Creator, Holy God. Sin separates us from God, and so God hates sin. As we look through Scripture, we will see that He consistently pours out His wrath and His anger on sin, and I've got to say this morning that He is perfectly just in doing so. If you don't believe me and you disagree with me, I want you to ponder our society for a moment. If you're like me, you'll remember times in your life when you've heard of someone who's committed an atrocious crime, a rape or a murder or some sort of abuse, only to get arrested and to go before a magistrate who says, naughty boy, naughty girl, and then just releases them back into society for them to re-offend and destroy a whole bunch more lives in the process. And you might remember a couple of years ago with Jill Maher, a guy called Adrian Bailey was a, a convicted you know, beater of women and a, a violent man who'd been convicted over and over again, and yet he was let out on probation to kill an innocent woman. And I don't know if you remember back at the time, but you, I remember the outcry. Our community said, that's, that's wrong. That the, the justice system could be so lax that a, a person who's committed such a horrific crime can be released back into society and, and not get the punishment they deserve to get. People were saying it's not fair. It's not right, it's not just. And yet, the very same people a lot of the time say, how can God be a God of love and then punish people for their wickedness? We can't have it both ways. See, God's love and God's justice, they go together. The Bible says all of us have sinned. None of us are innocent. None of us are innocent. All of us have fallen short of his standard. And the Bible says that sin carries with it a penalty. And the penalty prescribed in the Bible is death. Now, there's so many people, including Christians, that have a, have a trouble reconciling the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. And they say things like, well, how can a God of love wipe out people in the Old Testament and then come to earth to save us in the New? It seems like two different gods. And yet I've never really understood that. Because it's clear when you read scripture that we're talking about the same God who is still love, but he still hates sin. And if we think of the New Testament God as being a wishy-washy, it's okay to sin kind of God, then we've completely missed the message of the cross. We don't understand that it's the same God who hates sin, pouring out his wrath upon the sin of mankind, but by his grace and mercy, instead of wiping every one of us out, he wipes out his own son who dies in our place. God is the same God in all the scripture. And because of the cross, we can now, in the present time, experience grace and forgiveness. But the Bible teaches that Jesus is returning in his righteousness. And he will judge 
all of creation. And each of us will stand before God and give an account for our lives and our only hope of escaping punishment. Our only hope of being declared not guilty on that day is Christ who died on the cross to pay the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Man's wickedness is a problem because God still hates sin. It's a problem in this passage and it's also a problem in today's world and it's a reminder to us that we need to take sin seriously. And the danger is we look at a passage like this and we go, wow, it was really bad in Noah's day. But you know what Jesus says in the New Testament? He says that when he returns, it's going to be very similar now. In fact, in chapter 24 of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, as was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, eating up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Our world is becoming more and more wicked all the time. I think it's hard to deny that when we look at the the nightly news. And so we need to be people who are ready and prepared for Jesus' return. And the question becomes for us is, how do we as Christians live in a world like this? I don't know if you've noticed, but over the last couple of decades, there's been a massive shift in worldview, a massive shift. Uh, we, uh, in this room, the majority of us have lived our entire lives in, in a, an era which has been known as Christendom. And Christendom basically means that we have lived in a culture where Christianity has been the dominant worldview. It's been the dominant view of our society. But over the last 20 years, there's been a drastic shift in that. Uh, we've been in a, a, a society dominated by Christianity for hundreds of years now, probably since Constantine in about 300 AD, where he declared that Christianity would be the religion of the empire. And ever since, we've been living with it being the, the center of our society. But we've got to understand that it's an unusual time in history. It's not the normal that Christianity is the dominant worldview. In fact, nearly all the time throughout Bible history, if you look at God's people, they have been people not at the center or dominant, but they've been people who have been on the margins, persecuted. You look at Israel in the Old Testament, they weren't uh, seen as significant or central in any way. You look at the church in the New Testament, and they were people on the margins who were persecuted and ridiculed for their faith in Christ. Jesus, the center of our faith, was crucified on a Roman cross. You don't get much further on the margins than that. And so Christianity, um, for most of history, has not been at the center of society. And I think that Christians are struggling to know how to respond in a culture that's changing so quickly. And I've seen three real responses. The first one is that many Christians are in mourning. They are mourning the end of Christendom, that we are heading into a time of history that's a post-Christian world in the West. People aren't growing up in church anymore. They're not going to Sunday school. They're not holding on to a worldview. And so many Christians are mourning the loss of Christendom. Can I encourage us as a congregation not to be those people? Because when you look at the church on the margins, I see a church that always seems to be more powerful, more passionate, more purposeful when they're being persecuted on the margins than when they're at the center of society. Over the last few hundred years, we've become complacent, lazy, apathetic, comfortable, following Christ when it's convenient. But there's nothing like being pushed out on the margins to test and qualify our faith. 
Uh, the New Testament says that in the last days, the love of most will grow cold. That's a sobering verse right there. The love of most will grow cold. We're going to face a decision. Are we going to be one of the most? Or are we going to be people who stand up when the world abandons God? And so don't mourn the end of Christendom, but instead embrace it as a great opportunity for mission, a great opportunity to stand out in the midst of darkness. And so that's one response. People mourn the end of Christendom. Other people are fighting to keep it. And if you're one of those, I want to, uh, I want to say something today that you'll see either as defeatist or prophetic or just studying the obvious. We're not going to turn the cultural tide. We've got no chance of turning it back to being a Christian nation. We're in a post-Christian era. But once again, that's not all bad. It pre- presents great opportunity. And so instead of fighting against it, we need to be people who stand up in the midst of it and be people who live by conviction. The third response, and this is one that's becoming increasingly popular, is that Christians are just merely assimilating into a new worldview. Instead of standing for anything, we just represent what the rest of the world represents. The only difference is that we still tag ourselves as Christians. Uh, 20 years ago, if you had a more traditional view on things such as marriage or equality or sexuality, then you would be seen as a person who was in the vast majority a person who had a noble view. But now, if you have a traditional view, you'll quickly be labelled as someone who hates or someone who's a bigot. And I've got to say, I think that's grossly unfair because the majority of Christians I know are people who are loving and caring. And they love people despite their race or their religion or their sexuality. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to love people from all different backgrounds. But yet, we're we're labelled with that. And so if you're a Christian, you hold a traditional view, you're seen as a a hater or a bigot, but if you're on the other side of the coin, that's okay. And that's the environment that we live in. And so a lot of Christians are feeling the pressure to conform to a new worldview, the majority worldview, because Christianity is seen as something that's outdated or irrelevant or in some quarters dangerous. And so instead of being labelled, people are just abandoning God's word and and what they're doing under the under the title of being progressive is it just moving forward without God's word and I don't think that's the answer in this story I think that it's clear that we're called to be different and so we've looked at man's wickedness but we see in the story one man Noah and now we look at his righteousness and in the story there's one man who sets the example for us and it's him I want you to consider what it must have been like every day. Imagine the pressure when literally everyone else on earth had abandoned God except him. There must have been extreme pressure to conform to what the rest of the world were doing. In his day, every thought of every human heart was only evil all the time. Full stop. Noah was a righteous man blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. If our world is becoming a little bit like it was in Noah's day, Noah becomes a great role model for us because he was righteous. And this is staggering because he was surrounded by violence and corruption. We say things like, you become who you hang out with. We say it's it's hard to soar like an eagle when you're surrounded by donkeys. And these sayings all point to the importance of the company you keep, And it's true that the Bible says that bad company can corrupt good character. And if you hang out with someone who's always negative, you'll usually become negative. If you hang out with someone who's always critical, you'll usually become critical. If you hang out with someone who gossips, you'll probably start to gossip. If you hang out with someone who brags for calling it, your teeth will fall out. (laughs) 
It's contagious, right? Not for Noah. When everyone else did the wrong things, Noah did the right thing. When everyone else was corrupt, Noah was a man of integrity. When literally the whole world gave themselves to sin, Noah stood by his convictions. He was blameless among the people because one man stood up, you and I still exist today. Noah was the only one who stood between us and annihilation. And so I wonder going forward into the future, what impact we will have as we continue to walk with God when the vast majority of people abandon him. Church, Jesus says, if you're a Christian, you're called to be different. If you're a Christian, you're going to stand out without even trying. People are going to see something different about you. Jesus puts it like this. He says, you are the light of the world. He said, I'm the light of the world when he was on earth. But then just as he was preparing to leave, he said, you're the light of the world. It's like he was passing on the baton. And you and I now are his ambassadors here in this world. When the world gets darker and darker, we are the light that Jesus sends on mission. We are the people who are called to reflect his character. The Apostle Paul says it like this. He says, in Christ, we're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He says, it's no longer I, but it's Christ who lives in me. Noah was a righteous man. But he wasn't a righteous man because he was superhuman. He was a righteous man because verse 9 tells us that he continued to walk with God even when nobody else did. Being a Christian doesn't make us any less prone to sin than anybody else. We struggle like everyone else. Daily I'm reminded of the things I struggle with, the thoughts I have, the things I say in my head, the doubts I often have. And if you could could hear all of those things, you would never have appointed me as your pastor. But it's too late, you've already voted. <laughs> but the truth is, we're all in the same boat. None of us can be righteous in our own strength. The only possible way that we can live as light in a dark world is to walk with God through his word, through prayer, empowered by the Holy Spirit. If we're going to reflect his character in our families, in our workplace, in our world, in the circumstances of life, we need to be people who walk with him. And so in the backdrop of man's wickedness, we see one man. We see Noah's righteousness. But Noah's not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. And we need to finish by focusing what I think the main point of the story is. In fact, the main point of all the Bible. The main point is God's graciousness. Psalm 103 verse 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. In this story, God was angry, but it had been 1,500 years of incredible wickedness. Instead of just destroying all of mankind, he provided a mode of salvation, and Noah spent 100 years building the ark giving people another century to repent of what they were doing and to hear what God was saying. So even though he was grieved with mankind, he provided a way to be saved. In verse 17, it says, Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. You and your family will be saved, your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. This is incredible grace. Noah was a righteous man, but he wasn't a perfect man. And God could have easily just pronounced judgment on him. But by his grace, he provided a way out. The Old Testament all points to Jesus. And the ark is an Old Testament type that points to an even greater reality in Christ. Noah and his family put their faith in God and they stepped onto a wooden ark. We also need to put our faith in God and trust in Jesus who hung on a wooden cross. 
And just as Noah put his faith in God, escaped God's judgment and was saved, we too need to put our faith in Jesus. And as we do, he will take the judgment we deserved and we too will be saved. This is the glorious, life-changing truth of the gospel that we don't deserve to be saved, but because of God's graciousness, he has made a way in Christ. The story of Noah is a story of man's wickedness. It's a story of Noah's righteousness, but most of all, it's a demonstration of God's incredible graciousness. For us today, it's a reminder to flee sin, to live our lives for Christ, empowered by the Spirit, and to put our trust in the graciousness of God.